Greetings and welcome to In the Finest Hour, a 40k competitive podcast featuring tips and tricks you can use in about an hour. Today, I am your temporary host, Shaylin Allen, seeing as Sean has decided to go off and become Florida Man. With me in the studio, I have Joshua Death, our evil podcast host. Oh yeah, no Sean, all the evil. Josh, that's not true. I am good enough to make up for the fact Sean's not here. <laughs> Besides, we also have our very most amazing special guest this evening, Scary. Hello, internets. It is me, from the Spire. I will say this, he is the nicest bad elf I know. Are you telling me that I can't leave the two of you unattended for like ten minutes? So good. Don't don't fret. <laughs> it's awesome to have you on tonight, Scary. How's that Canadian spring treating you up there in the spire? Canada is uh, not as cold as it was a few weeks ago. That's good. Awesome. My curiosities about the Canadian weather aside, I do have a question for the two of you that is very much related to the topic of today's uh, episode. And I was wondering, what was your first experience hauling your army on an aircraft like? Scar, you want to hit this one first? I took my army on an airplane for the first time when I went to the ETC in 2018. Ah, just this last year? Yes, it was. I got a 720 battle foam bag. I filled it with custom battle foam foam with the Dark Eldar Raiders, like the deep foam that you can put everything in with even the sails and stuff. Nice. And I took it on as a carry-on, and I had a backpack with my clothes, a.k.a. I didn't have to check a bag, and it all arrived in one piece. I'm so jealous. Josh, I must ask, why are you jealous? Okay, so I have mine. And it's ironic that we have Scary on tonight for this, because my very first experience flying happened to be with Dark Eldar. <laughs> way, way, way back in the days of 5th edition, oh yeah, they were the Metal Ravagers. I remember they didn't actually sell Ravagers at the time, they only sold the Vect model. I ended up buying four copies of Asbel Vect to get Ravagers, it was hilarious. But in those days, the only real case out there that was any legitimate case was that old GW plastic suitcase. Uh-huh. And I had to fly from Seattle to Baltimore to be in the Nationals for Ard Boys. The lists were 2,500-point lists. And I remember I had 17 combination of either Ravagers or Raiders, just 17 Ravagers and Raiders, not counting anything else in the army. I am getting a sense of ominous foreshadowing. It was. It was. Because back in those days, they had those big suitcases, and then they had this big roll-away luggage thing that would hold two of those plastic suitcases in it. So I had two of those. And I remember getting off the plane, and I went down to the uh, airport shuttle to get to the hotel. And I waited outside. Guy pulls up, comes around, opens the back. There's like five people standing there. I hand him the first bag, and I go, this is really fragile. As I'm handing it to him, he takes it and just turns sideways and just, right into the back of the van. I mean, I'm talking like a five-foot toss. And and he turns back and he's like, what was that? My heart literally just sunk. And I was like, no, no. <laughs> and so I get to the hotel and I open the case up. And of course, these are the combination plastic metal models. And so I was up till about 4.30 that morning re-gluing models because 80% of the army was just destroyed. Let's let Darth Vader do this. 
<laughs> well, on a more positive note, my first experience taking an army on an aircraft was packing it all up in my lovely little foam KR multi-case for my second Las Vegas Open. Everything came through perfectly fine with the exception of my Dread Knights. A grotto really, really likes breaking off at his high heels, so of course my Dry Queen Dread Knight broke. But it was like maybe five seconds of glue repair, so I was okay. Drag Queen Dreadnought, eh? Dread Knight. Dread Knight. He is the sexy Grandmaster at the ball. For our curious listeners out there, there will be an image of Grandmaster Agrado Damao, the Dread Knight in question, on our Facebook page. And as much as I would love to spend an hour talking about the fabulousness of my Dread Knights, I'm going to throw that out the window, and this whole netlisting thing we were supposed to be doing out the window, because a certain Sir Morgan isn't here to stop me. And we're going to talk about ETC. Hooray! Because Scarry's here, and Scarry and Josh have both been, and I'd like to hear the expert on the feet opinion. I'm, I'm actually really happy to have Scarry on tonight to be able to talk about the ETC, especially, correct me if I'm wrong, Scarry, but... This past year, 2018, that was your first time attending ETC, correct? Yes. That is both awesome and amazingly impressive to me. I actually kind of followed the Canadian team's progress, and I remember just seeing the level of progress, and it was really awesome to watch the various communities kind of talk about your playing in particular because of the fact that, I mean, prior to this past year at ETC, pretty much this past year, Pure Drakari armies, as you very well know, were not given a very much credit. If it was pure Drakari, it was considered bunk. I think you did a really amazing job between the ETC and then what you did in the ITC this year of really kind of bringing to light the fact that Drakari in and of themselves are actually insanely competitive, especially if played right. I've had some do some damage. That is pretty dang cool, Skari. Since I have your attention here, I'd like to ask you to describe a brief history of the ETC and how the format works for our listeners. The ETC, I believe, started in Poland about 13 or 14 years ago. Yes, Poland. And it's a very specific format that you don't really find anywhere else in the world. We have giant teams of eight players. You basically face off against another team of eight players. And you have like a mini game uh, before the match even starts where you're pairing up all the players with each other and trying to come up with the best pairings uh, and then picking like the best tables and things like that as well. That's a pretty wonderful and succinct answer there, Skari. Hey, Josh, do you have anything to add? Yeah, sure. So the main aspect that you have is going into it before you even actually get to the point where you're you're pairing off two teams. One of the things to be aware of is uh, no member of the team can take a faction in their army that any other member of the team has used. Uh-huh. So every faction is unique to the extent of if you have a single unit in your army, like there's some units out there like uh, a tech priest engine here is a prime example that <clears throat> has both the Astro Militarum and the Adeptus Mechanicus keyword. If I'm running Astro Militarum list and I take a Tech Priest Engine Seer, that actually precludes any other member of my team even taking Adeptus Mechanicus as a faction. They are very restrictive of there's no overlapping between factions in the team. And if you think about it, eight-man teams, 
that actually gets a little hard at times where you're going to wind up with two or three of your players really kind of have to get creative with their lists. Especially in the greater keyword factions like Imperium and Chaos, I imagine that's a huge problem. Exactly. So it's definitely, that, that is an element that you definitely have to take into account when you're walking into this. Given this tight restriction, how does that affect summoning? If I was to try and summon something and another member of my team had demons, I would not be allowed to summon demons. To clarify, if I am running, say, Thousand Suns, my cohort is running Death Guard, but there are no demons in our team, we would both be able to summon, yes? Yes, as long as no other member of our team is running demons, yes. Thank you, Josh. Could you please explain how the pairings work, given that we have these two giant teams that are going to meet up and have our worldly representation to fight over who is the best dog in 40k? So when you're walking up to the table, Skari has his team of eight people, and he's the team captain. I have my team of eight people, and I'm our team captain. When I walk up to the table, I'm going to hand Skari all eight of our team lists. He's going to hand me all eight of his team lists. And we're going to take 10 minutes or 20 minutes. I don't remember if they bumped it this past year. But we get a certain amount of time for us to kind of look over the list, take a couple minutes, kind of get a look at them and vibe. And, and then we go back, we sit down, and it's it's very all ultra cool and professional where Scar is on the one side of the table sitting. He's got his entire team surrounding him. And I've got, I'm sitting, I'm sitting right directly across from him. And I've got my entire team standing behind me. And it's all very epic. So basically both teams are sitting down to that very typical... High contrast lighting, rising epic music, tense silence movie moment. Oh yeah, we're, we're waiting for like a Sylvester Sloan, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger arm wrestling moment to happen. That's pretty much what's about to happen. <laughs> uh, so we, we've reviewed the list, we're sitting down, we have the epic background music going, the stare off right before we hit a dance off. At that moment, they pick one of their eight lists and they put it face down on the table. How do you determine who puts down the list first? Oh, yes. We dice off. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. That sounds like it must be one of the most critical roles in your entire ETC experience. So huge. So of the eight tables that'll be there, two of the tables will have heavy density terrain, meaning there'll be a fairly dense table. Two of them will be very low density terrain, very almost open table. And four of them will be kind of what's a standard density. That first dice roll, it is actually a very crucial dice roll. Because whoever wins that role, their first player they pick gets to choose what table they play on. That's a non-negligible tempo swing right there. Yes. Then we've, we've done that dice off, and let's assume Skari has won the dice off, so his player is going to get to choose their table. So then what he's going to do is he's going to pick which one of his players he wants to put down first that is going to have choice. Seeing as we all know that Tau really favor planet bowling ball type tables... We'll say in this example that Skari sets out Val Heffelfinger, his resident Tau player. Now, we remind you, it's face down. We don't know that they put their Tau player out yet. So then we take one of our players and we put them face down on the table as well. So then, at the same time, they take the army that we put down. We look at Val. Let's say they choose, we'll say Tim as an example. And so they pick up Tim's list and we pick up Val's list. And I look to the rest of my team and we're like, okay... We have to pick two members of our team that we're going to put against Val, all right? And we're going to put both of them down with Val. We're going to put them back down on the table right there with his list. Now, Scari is going to look to his people, and they're going to pick two members of their team that they want to put against Tim. We'll say Tim's running Imperial Knights. Most certainly with guard allies. Most likely, yes. So he's going to run, they're going to pick two lists that they're going to pair well against guard and knights. They put them back down on the table. 
and then we flip them all face up. All right. Now Val gets to choose between one of those two players that were put in front of him to play against, of the two that were presented to him. And then Tim gets to pick his opponent from the two that Skari presented to him. So Val picks, and then he gets to choose his table, Planet Bowling Ball number one. And then Tim picks his opponent, and then he goes and picks his table. Then the two armies that didn't get picked go back into the mix, and we rinse and repeat. Do they roll off again to see who picks next? No. It goes back and forth after that roll. The The thing to be aware of here, win or lose in the ETC is done right here. Your team wins or loses in this exact phase alone. Because again, it's not, I could get 20 points maxed out against my opponent every single game. It doesn't mean shit to my team because I'm only a member of eight. I'm one of eight. And our score as a team is a combined score of all of our players. So what about the example where, let's just say, Skari's looking at that imperialized list and goes, I don't got anyone to deal with that. What happens then? Sometimes when it's like it's a matchup where there's not a single member of your team that is, is a favorable matchup against this list. At that point, it's not even a question of who has the best shot at actually putting points against this player. It's who wants to take this player out of the mix. All right. Who do we want to take the goose egg just to get this guy so he doesn't play against someone else? That is a really cool piece of tactical depth. I think is amazing. And I can see why people are really into the ETC style now. But your captain does get a little bit of help. I mean, this individual can study the lists because they're all posted and submitted in advance. They're all pre-submitted and they're all released normally a couple of weeks in advance. So you can have time to read them all. Now, mind you, that's four, four or five hundred lists that you have to read. So, Skari, I know you've not had a lot of time at the mic right recently, so could you explain to me how a team might approach list building and list subtypes in this format? There's a few different list types. Basically, you have uh, defenders or blockers that are designed to soak up hits and not give away a lot of points in the mission format. You have attackers that are designed to go out and essentially smash your opponent so badly and get lots of points. And then you have armies that are sort of tricksy armies that you could put into a tight situation and then they can sort of swing it. So an example of an attacker list would be a highly aggressive Double Spears Yunari list. And a defender list might be more of just like a Nurgle Plague Bearer spam kind of deal. Correct. So what constitutes a good swing list? Well, without being biased, and by being biased 100%, I would say Drukari. I feel they have a lot of different tools for the job at hand. They can be very aggressive and get points, or they can play very defensively and deny points as well. Oh god, yes. Yeah, they strike me as a high shenanigan finesse army, which seems like a perfect match for a swing position. To me, the single most important role, because every, every team has uh, certain roles that it, it's legally allowed to have. You have a team captain. You actually have a co-captain. There's eight players of the team of which co-captain and captain have to be selected from that eight. And then there is a coach. A lot of people don't realize that that coach, while he is not actively playing, in my opinion, now this is just my opinion for what it is, is probably the single most important member of that team. When you say coach, I'm thinking of someone who gives advice mid-game to players. Am I thinking correctly? Limited advice. Okay. 
Oh, that's what the coach has to be doing. The coach is the one who's going around between the tables, seeing how the team is doing as a whole, and relaying any related information to players who may or may not have their games be affected by how other people are doing. And he is the only person that can do that. No one else. Like, if I get done with my game early, it is actually a penalizing offense for me to go and start talking to a member of my team that's still in the middle of their game. I can't do that. That makes total sense. One of the single most important skills that this coach has to be able to do is they have to be able to innately just walk up and within 10, 15 seconds, look at a table, know how it's going, the board state, what's going on, and what to expect out of it, and then walk away. These high-end teams that win every year, they win because they have a good coach in that position. So I know that the missions are very different from the ITC, and that the scoring is really unique in the ETC format. Skari, could you please go over that for us? Yes, so ETC missions vary from ITC. You know, ITC missions are very cookie-cutter. They can be mixed and matched, and essentially placed anywhere in the world in the same mission format for anybody, just easy. The ETC missions, I feel, are more attuned and sort of loyal to the way the book missions were designed. Having the three different sort of mission formats being played all in one. You have an Eternal War mission parameter, so end of game scoring, so end objectives. You have a Maelstrom of War mission, which is like a progressive mission scoring throughout the game that forces you to think on the fly and be flexible. And then you have a kill point mission aspect where it's on a differential. So if you and I were playing and you destroy 10 of my units and I destroy six of your units, you have a differential of plus four over me. So you'd get a four point differential. It caps at six specifically. So then at the end of the game, whether it's five, six or seven turns, because it is random game length. As part of the book. Exactly. You would add up all the points you got in both Maelstrom of War, Eternal War, Kill Points, and then First Strike, Linebreaker, Warlord, and say you got 26 points in total from all of those things put together. And then I would have got, say, 16 points in total. So you would win by 10 points. And that differential there would essentially determine whether how we split 20 points between us for the actual game point. So it could be a 14 to you, 6 to me, or it could be a 10-10, or it could be, like, if that's a draw, or it could be a 20-0 either way. And that's usually a complete smashing. All right, that's pretty cool. I am a bit flattered that you think I would beat you in this sort of circumstance. (laughs) Hey, you know, that drag queen Dread Knight, you never know when he's going to pop up. Pop up, and as Sean could happily tell you, not fail any saves the entire game. Hasn't done that in a while. (laughs) Since we've just talked about the kind of key positions players took on teams, and then the scoring system, I kind of want to bring it all together before we go into the second half of the episode with a, what kind of positions did the two of you take on the team? Let's start with you, Josh. Okay, alright, I'll jump on that one. Um, so the couple times I've gone, uh, I ended up taking a position of the swing list. Oh man, you got stuck in hard mode there. Yes, and it's a very hard list to write. Um, and some in, a, in the ETC format, a lot of times, they don't do really well because of the severe, skewed nature 
of a lot of the lists you see. And that's most certainly because the format encourages very unbalanced lists. Yes, very much so. And what this means is counter to every single other type of tournament format I know of, take all comers lists fail in the ETC. And see, that's the irony is when you're writing a swing list, it's not actually that you're writing a take on all comers list because you're right. A take on all comers list in this format actually will struggle. It's a swing list in that you can change the play style of the list to be either. You can change the way the list plays to be an offensive list, or you can change the way the list plays to be a defensive list. Not that you're actually going to try and be a take on everybody list. Does that make sense? I do understand the fine nuance of what you're saying there, but honestly, it sounds like building a proper sling list is extremely difficult. Yeah. I'll be honest, you two, I'm still wrapping my head around the idea of a tournament that just favors super high imbalance stuff. This literally goes against everything I conventionally know and understand and instinctually get about list building in 40k. It is. Yeah. You can sort of avoid your worst matchups in a lot of cases. So you can build armies that are very good at a specific thing and not as good at a very specific thing. And this is where the ETC gets reputation for just sheer amounts of spam. It's more because you have the opportunity to take those out of left field lists, you know, like 18 tractor cannons, and then try and get paired up against the Eldar list of your opponent's army, right? So there's lots of things that you can try and do to kind of get the favorable matchups. If you can get those 20 points because you're playing against a favorable matchup, it's easier to sort of deny that. Oh, I, I just, I can play anything, just don't put me up against this one list, you know? And you can kind of avoid that one thing that trumps your list normally. Thanks for the expanded explanation, Scarry. Really good. So, I'm going to field this question to the both of you. How do you tactically play a swing list since it can go both ways? How, how do you actually approach doing that? Josh? Be fluid. That's actually one of the key aspects of the swing player on a team is... You will, a lot of times you'll start out the game playing like you're going to play very conservative. You're not going to play overly aggressive. And you're pretty much going to, what you're doing is you're biding your time. It's almost like a rope-a-dope in boxing. You're just playing it safe, not being overcommittal. And you're waiting for the coach to come around, probably about turn three, and say, this is what I need you to do. And then you need to be able to do it. That's why you're a swing, because you can play that complicated dual style switch around. I presume that most teams put very experienced finesse player in those positions, yeah? Kind of, or I've, I've seen quite a few teams a lot of times will also, I hate saying it this way, they'll have a tendency to put their uh, weakest link there as well. Uh-huh. And those teams, are it's more a situation where they have seven players, their eighth player dropped, someone just kind of filled the gap, and they really didn't know what to give them, so that's what they gave them. Q-wins. The two years I went, I was the swing player both times. And it was the second year was the very first 8th edition year. I was running Gene Steer Cult Tyranids as swing. And it was a brutal army to try and run swing in that meta because it was flyers everywhere. Oh, yeah. Before boots on the ground and the nerfs and all that stuff went in. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was really a month and a half after the edition dropped. 
one of the games I remember, it's still one of the best games in my 20 plus years of playing Warhammer, was I played against a good member of Team Ireland, great guy. For the life of me, my brain is farting and I cannot remember his name right now and I feel horrible saying that because he, it was one of my best games ever. He had six Hemlock Wraith Fighters and a Wave Serpent full of Dark Reapers and then a couple characters. That was his army and I was running Gene Store Cult and Tyranids and a Vortex Aquila. That was my army. Sounds like a hot mess of a game. Exactly, exactly. We ended up going six turns and I ended up winning 20-0 where we all anticipated I was going 0-20 in that game. And it was just a back-and-forth brutal game. It was very very akin to a lot of my games with Skari, actually, where it's just this back-and-forth the whole damn game, and no one's really going to know who's walking away with it. And then there was this one pivotal turn on turn 5 where the Vortex exploded, did a 12-inch explosion, and killed three flyers. All right. And that kind of tipped the game, and I ended up being able to sneak it out after that because it was just, it was, it was rough, it was brutal. And it was an amazingly tight game. We ended up both yelling at our own team captains three times in that game. Uh-huh. We were getting so into the game, and we were getting so loud and boisterous that both of our captains, multiple times the game came over, like their, his team captain came over one time and was like, dude, do I need to get a judge? Is he being a little, you know, thinking like I was being obnoxious or rude to him? And he, he turns to his team captain, he's like, shut up, we're playing our game, leave. <laughs> it was, and I ended up doing the same thing to mine as well. I'm like, dude, we got our game, just shut up. But it was, it was an amazing game. So to bring this all together... The unique things about the ETC format is that you get to have some control over the matchups you have, which enables some pretty off-kilter lists, because you don't have to be paired against the things that will crush you. Additionally, the hardest facet of a team is both the combination of the coach, who dictates the entire tempo of team play and assesses how well it's doing at any particular moment, and swing positions which are the places where the coach needs to apply pressure to get the overall team victory done. Amen. Well, this has been an excellent conversation, and I think we need to take a short break to hear from our sponsors and talk to the quartermaster and actually be on time for summons once. So we'll catch you on the flip side of the episode with a little bit more about all this fine detail ETC stuff. War gamers, perhaps you have an army that you've always been wanting to collect, but just don't have all the cash flow you'd like to get all the models brand spanking new from Games Workshop Direct. Or maybe you've got an army you just don't have space in your life to love as much as it really deserves. Well, let me tell you about Mindtaker Miniatures. At Mindtaker.org, you can contact the buyer and sell your miniatures for used ones that are perfectly good and fun for everybody. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god! Let me tell you about this amazing tournament I went to last year. It was the Boardroom Brawl GT in Grand Forks, Canada. This year, they're doing it again, August 3rd and 4th. It includes a post-game barbecue on Saturday, which is the best social thing ever. Also, fantastic terrain that is just super cool and kooky and engaging. 
and some of the most finest players you will ever meet. Totally worth the trip to Canada for. Please go, guys. We're back, refueled and ready to go. Get right back into this ETC conversation. So Josh was gossiping with us a little bit during the break, and I thought we should bring the gossip around if you don't mind sharing that, because it's something of interest to the listeners. I actually uh, put it through the ETC Council this year to have uh, America be allowed to have three teams. Uh huh. One East Coast, one West Coast, one Midwest, just because... We're so huge, and honestly, the East, West, and Midwest have such diverse, different ways of approaching the game that it's almost like different countries in the way they look at it. A small aside for our international listeners here, America is so huge that it takes two weeks to drive from one side to the other, and culturally speaking, the difference between the state of Oregon where I live and Ohio, where Josh lives, and Alabama, where some of my family is from, is huge. Yeah. Sorry to disrupt, Josh. You can go back to what you were saying. Yeah. And uh, they're actually putting it before the council. That is extremely cool, and I hope that we'll be able to deliver some news to the listeners when we have some about the matter. Although England has five ETC teams. Oh, really? It was written into the charter of when they created the ETC because the game was, you know, made in England. They gave them five teams. And that's what he said. <laughs> yeah, there's Scotland, Ireland, Wales, one in London, I believe, or Northern, and then there's another UK one. On a side note to our American listeners, all of these regions Josh just spoke of are culturally distinct within the UK. And they all used to be separate countries before the United Kingdoms became united via reasons. I'm not going into the history here. <laughs> As Joss has just happily summarized for us, European history is kind of a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we're 40k competitive, not historical podcast. Yeah. Alright, alright. Back to the topic at hand. I have a really quick question. I know that you can formally get onto an ETC group, but I've heard that there's uh, murking, which means that someone lets you onto your team despite the fact you're not from that particular country. Do you know anything about that? Well, that's uh, me. I, every year I've gone to ETC, I've, I've never actually played for America. Oh, really? I've played for the UN team. I've murked onto a couple other teams, but I've never actually played for USA. That's pretty fascinating, Josh. Scary, I know you've been formally allowed onto the Canadian ETC team. Can you give our listeners a little insight into that process? Being Canadian helps. Quite certain that's true. You don't need Grey Knight Psychics to predict that one. <laughs> I do apologize for that, Scary. It's a little hard to keep the evil in check sometimes. So good. Don't 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 fret. <clears throat> so, for Team Canada, how do they select their people? Yes, back back to how do you get on the team? So Canada this year sort of started doing a little bit differently. We were selecting our team very closely 
like sort of like a sports team. All right. Where we have a pool of applicants, and we've been condensing this pool of applicants through like a draft process, right? So essentially narrowing the field down to the team. So we started with about twenty applicants, and now we've gone down to about ten serious applicants, and out of those ten, we've already selected six out of the eight-person team. Uh huh. By the end of the month, we should have the full team selected, plus staff, plus like the media person and things like that. So effectively, you're feeling out the one of these from the all stars, right? Exactly. We, it's it, we, we're not only looking for folks that you know care about the game or know how to play the game well. We're looking for team members that are going to be a part of that team, are engaged, are consistent, and just have a general good attitude towards the goals of the team. Uh huh. We're also looking for team members that have the mental fortitude to e- even take a, a losing situation and finish the game. Right? There's been so many times that I've had opponents um, hand me the game on turn three or four and shake yeah. my hand without playing the game out, and and they'll never know what could have happened if they would have played the game to its completion. And a lot of the times I find people leave points on the table by just giving up too soon. And if you throw the towel in like that, you know, it's not about that one specific game. It's about you having the mental fortitude to finish the game and hopefully make something happen in those final turn six and seven. That game that I won against that uh, six flyer list, actually, it was if the game ended on turn five, uh, I lost. Game ended on turn six. Even though it already swung, I still lost. We went turn seven, I won. And so, I mean, and I've seen more of those moments, more of those games where turn five, six, or seven, the game just flips on you, that I can, I've seen more of those in ETC than I've ever seen anywhere else. One of the stories from my early 40k career that still stays with me is me encouraging my opponent to stay with me after being severely demoralized from my drop, and he did. As a result of me keeping him in the game, he pulled the game out on me, and I just remember that look on his face of just pure shock of the fact that he won this game. He thought he was totally losing, and it reminded me that, you know, it's not over till it's over. Never quit. Never give up. Fight it till the end. That's what it's about. Never quit. Exactly. Finish your games. Thanks, Gary. Well, unfortunately, you've never been on the American team, Josh. Do you know how America gets its ETC team together? Um, I know prior to the current team captain, prior to Sean Naden, uh, uh, Andrew Gagno was the captain. And the way he did it at the time was he kind of had pretty much a ranking process where he would use large events. An event had to be 50 or more people to qualify. He added to the database. If you place in the top three, your name got put on this database and this list. And you got so many points for placing in one, two, three, depending on where you placed. And at some point in the season, the top six people on that list would be extended an invitation. And Andrew Gagno, obviously being the seventh, the captain, and then... The remaining six people now that were on that list would put forth nominations for who they felt should take that eighth spot, and then they would vote on it. And that's how the team was dictated at the time. Now, Sean Naden, when he took over this past year, 
he took a very different approach to it. And I know there's a lot of mixed feedback, but there definitely was some negative feedback. Ah, I suspect he changed things up a little bit, didn't he? He did, because the way he did it was he flat out said, I'm not doing a qualification process or a ranking system or whatever. I'm going to pick eight people to play for Team America. And he did catch some static for it. And I remember even one of them, and it, it surprised me because it was me. Like, it, initially, I was actually a little taken aback by it. Like, wow, you've got all these people, and some of these people would love to represent America, but they're not getting a chance. And I was actually salty at that until it dawned on me why. And it's not that he was doing it because he's like, oh, I just want me and my buddies to go to Europe. That's not what he was doing. He realized that there was one crucial element to making a successful competitive team that you could not do with just having, well, this guy did really good down in Arizona to some tournaments, and this guy did really good up in Seattle, and we're just going to grab all these guys and make a team with them. They don't know each other. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. They can't practice with each other. They can't play together. And that was the big difference that he did. So while myself included, chucking a little shade at Sean for, for approaching it the way he did, because I thought it was he was approaching it with, you know, good old boys club and I'm going to have me and my boys going to Europe and all this. And I was wrong. And I'll be the first one to step up and actually admit and say I was wrong because that's not what he was doing. That's not the method he was trying to do. He approached it with the mentality of we need to have a team that can play together, that knows each other, that can practice together, that we can reach that goal as a unit, as a group. And that's what he focused on first. And then he made the playing and the lists and all that fit that. And ironically, America won, right? We won. That was the first time ever in ETC history. We won. So obviously what he was doing worked and he was right. And so if Sean ever does hear this, I'm going to be the first one to say, I'm sorry. I owe you an apology because... Uh, I was salty at him for making that decision, and I was wrong. I was misinterpreting what he was trying to do, and I thought it was pretty awesome how he did it. But it's very different than even the way the Canadians do it. It still has its own merits and its own value in the way he does it. So every in every country is different. So to our listeners, if you are curious as to how you might get on an ETC team that isn't Canada or America, I would highly advise contacting the coach of that team, who is a known individual, and asking how one gets on the team. They have some sort of system in place, and they'll be happy to tell you. And it might be very similar to one of the two systems we just described, or something completely different that I don't know what would look like. So I do have a quick question. What's the ETC like? It, it's a phenomenal weekend, and the, one of the things I love is there's only uh, two rounds each day. Oh, really? And they're four-hour rounds total. Gonna go out on a limb and say that slow play doesn't really happen with those kind of numbers. Slow play is not an issue, uh, honestly, and also a lot of the sportsmanship things that kind of plagued a lot of competitive play for a number of years, like leading six and seven and stuff, they really weren't issues at the ETC, because the ETC, uh, a similar system to what the ITC is using now in the Code of Conduct, they've been doing that system for years, and it's been very effective. I had read an article once about uh, Neil. He's the head judge from Scotland that basically took all of the worst crap that was happening in the ETC and just took pure Scottish rage to it until it became the premier clean sporting event that it is today. Yeah, that's what they did. So Josh, seeing as you are a veteran of the London GT and the European Team Champions, can you tell me a little bit more about the European meta? You mean as far as like uh, what what kind of what does the meta look like over there as far as the style list you're gonna see? Yes. 
Um, the one thing that I will admit that you will see significantly more over there is lists that are designed to board control, hold objectives, control the table are much more popular there. Prime example was at LGT, one of the lists that kind of got a, a lot of people joked about it, but it actually did pretty well, was the the 54 Nurglings. Uh-huh. The guy that literally ran six units of nine Nurglings, and he actually did pretty damn well at LGT last year because it was they were using the ETC missions, and his army favored uh, board control, objective control, and... The ability to respond, exactly, the ability to just deny your opponent points, and his army was really good at that. Even as a Grey Knight player, the thought of facing down 54 Nurglings sounds like a giant pain in the butt. (laughs) And your army, your army's designed to kill that, and it's still like, oh my god. This is far from a laughing matter, Joshua Death. (laughs) (laughs) So, Skari, I, I did have a question I wanted. If you had especially since this last year was your first year, if you had one takeaway, like one uh, just takeaway that you would want to share to anyone that's an aspiring ETC player, what would it be? Be humble. You need to go to this event and understand that no matter how good you think you are, even a GT winner or major event winner, you have to go to these events and understand that people there take the game more seriously than you do practice more than you and they are better than you and that sort of humility is what is going to set you up for success at the world stage but if you're not be prepared to get your face smashed in because you think you're the best yes this reminds me of an interview i heard with ben cromwell when he was talking about his time in the etc He had said that he had been playing against players of a caliber of an opponent that in more modern 40k, I would just say Matt Rutt or Nick Nottavati caliber. Basically, you have to be ready to face 20 Nick Nottavatis if you want to win the ETC. That's that's what takes. Exactly. Every single round from round one is like playing the fifth or sixth round at a major event because the filter of people having to go through to get to the ETC only lets the top people go. Exactly. And that condensation of caliber of player makes looking at both the lists from this event, the matchups, and who wins, keeping your eye on it will actually tell you a great deal about 40k at its finest by the finest. And that just wraps up our show here, so we're going to go into the end of show babble real quick. If you'd like to reach us at In the Finest Hour, you may do so at inthefinesthour at gmail.com or on our Facebook page, shooting us a message there. For $5 a month, you can join our Patreon services and get into our private Discord chat and Facebook group and get all the fine details and a personal attention from our hosts. Josh, do you have any events coming up you want to throw out? Yes, actually coming up uh, here soon. Dallas Open on April 12th. Uh, That one I'm really looking forward to. It's going to be pretty good. There's some exciting things in store at the Dallas Open. Hey, Scary, while you're here, do you have any events coming up you'd like to throw out? Yeah, so early May, uh, well, late April, I'm going to the Stud or Scrub GT that's happening 
uh, in Cambridge, Ontario. And that's an ET. It's actually great that we're talking about. It's an ETC style event. There might still be tickets left, but it's a, it's going to fill up and, um, and it's an ETC format event. So the Friday we're having a sort of championship where we have members of the Canadian ETC team versus scrubs. So studs versus scrubs. And we're going to do like a mini tournament. Uh, single elimination to determine who whether a stud or a scrub wins this that uh, little mini tournament and then we'll do a full gt on the saturday sunday and that's uh dustin henshaw and jesse running it down to forbes hobbies in uh, cambridge ontario canada excellent i hope some more people make it out got anything for may in may i'm going to the ettc which is uh in Ottawa, and I'm going to the Canhammer team tournament, where we have the Canadian team split into two teams of five, uh, essentially going down to uh, this 24-team tournament. So there's like almost 200 people at this event. All right. Yeah, it's very fun. I went for the first time last year, and I'm hooked. I love it. Team events are probably my favorite way of playing 40k. I do have to admit, I get a certain vindictive pleasure of attending team tournaments with Sean as my teammate because our opponents just for some reason like to assume that Sean's basically going to play the game and I'm going to sit there and hamper him. And we just both just kind of turn, grin, move each other's models and almost not say anything. That's the best kind of synergy. Team tournament synergies aside, Sean Morgan will be at the Wet Coast GT on April 20th. And he will also be attending the Storm of Silence on May 18th and Barry Open. And hopefully we get a Josh. Oh, yeah. I will be under work rock until further notice. Oh, sad. I only work three days a week, but it's Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, which is, of course, great days to go to tournaments. That sucks. I'd actually love to throw a shout out to our sponsor, Dank Muse. He's actually the, the one that is does all of our episode music, our intro, outro, and our commercial music. And he actually does some pretty awesome stuff. Uh, if you ever get a chance to head on over to Spotify or to his uh, um, SoundCloud page, uh, feel free. And a, and a Patreon, I think he actually started up. Uh, d- definitely go check him out. So he has some pretty cool stuff. He actually does a lot of the Simpsons-themed stuff that's really neat. So uh, definitely head, head on over there and track him out, Dank Muse. And I'd like to throw a shout-out to Rylan Woodrow for doing our amazing art. Please look him up on Facebook. And I would love to throw a shout-out to MindTakerMiniatures.org. Uh, they do have an extensive, extensive shop of uh, used miniatures, both Fantasy, Age of Sigmar, 40K, uh, just a pretty vast selection of used miniatures, and they actually buy used. So if you're wanting to start a new project and want to look on the cheap, good place to check out MindTakerMiniatures.org. Scary, I hear you also do a podcast or something like that. Can you give us a shout-out? Yeah, I mainly have the YouTube channel. Haven't done podcasting in a few years, although I've had a lot of encouragement to start it up again. Um, you can find all stuff Drukari mainly, although I do other 40k content as well, and Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones stuff, and Legion, and Battlefleet Gothic, and a whole bunch of stuff. But go to Scardcast on YouTube. That's S-K-A-R-E-D-C-A-S-T. And uh, from there, you can go to all the links in any video. Just click on it, and in the description, you can go straight to, uh, you know, see the Denizen community, which is the Patreon page, as well as Instagram, Twitter, Reddit, all that good stuff. Since I do content creation full-time, it's my job, I'm always posting new stuff up uh, throughout the weeks. You can always follow Skari on Facebook. I know I do. 
And you can also find him a link in the show notes for your convenience. Scary is a wonderful man, and I highly advise looking his stuff up. Good stuff. <gasps> well, man or Eldari disguised? I'll leave that to the listeners to decide. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's time for the list of the week. I actually would like to, if you are willing, uh, Scary. I know you just recently did some tweaks to your LVO Jakari list. Would you mind sharing that with us this week? I will. So my post IT my post LVO ITC list is a Prophets of Flesh Battalion with a Hemonculus and Urian Rakoth. Uh huh. Fifteen racks split into three five man squads. They're fantastic troop choices. I they're probably the best troop choice in the game. I wish I could have a troop choice like that. They are amazing. I then have seven grotesques. And two units of three Talos with Chain Flails, Macroscalpels, and Haywire Blasters. Ah, the Death Hug friends. Horrible hugs. They are. They, they are Death Hug friends. They're the, they're the wall of flesh that um, makes sure that I win games. I have a Kabbalah the Blackheart Spearhead with Archon Skari himself and three Triple Disintegrator Ravagers. To clarify for our listeners, Skari is not an official name of a named Archon. Sadly, but, you know, eventually. <laughs> and last but not least, I've rounded it up with a uh, Flayed Skull Airwing of two Razorwing Jet Fighters and my anti-Death Watch pill, a Void Raven Bomber. That's adorable, because Mortal Wounds and Death Watch is just... Just watching them pick up their models is funny. <laughs> exactly. So next week we will be doing that listing for sure because Scary was here. ETC Scary kinda just had to happen. Right. <laughs> and that's gonna wrap up our show. So this is Shaylin here with the good signing off in center, and Josh Death. Me on the left, evil signing off. And Scary on the right. Ah, the dark kid. Thank you for listening.